Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this month's Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, supported tonight by EY. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you tonight, and no doubt lots of you watching this on Catch Up with slightly sore heads tomorrow as well. We'll start in the traditional way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first time. Welcome. Databytes is, of course, the main event this evening. Yes, data's coming home. We've managed to pick four dazzling presentations tonight as our speakers mount their campaigns to shore off their sterling work. I've no doubt they'll rise to the occasion. There's no need to walk away early. You'd be rash for disappearing before the end because we'll be finished in plenty of time for the football. There's no need for us to cane it. And if you think that was bad, be glad I didn't realise until far too late what I could do with three lines on a chart. Let's start as ever with some housekeeping. We are on the record and are being live streamed, obviously. If you'd like to get involved on social media, the hashtag is IFGDataBytes and we're live tweeting from at IFG events. And if you want to put questions to our speakers today, you can do so using the Slido page. You're almost certainly watching this on already. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb21, case sensitive for the full experience. Why does the IFG host DataBytes? Well, we want to bring the different data communities in and around government together. We want to show people, especially those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data means in practice. And we want to put some interesting data projects on the record. How does DataBytes work? You're going to be treated to four presentations this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a DataByte. Each presentation will be followed by eight minutes, yes, eight minutes, of questions to the presenters before we move on to the next presentation. So four eight-minute presentations, each followed by eight minutes of questions. This is our 21st event. You can watch the previous 20, including last month's geospatial special on the IFG website. As ever, it's been a quiet month in British politics. Let's start with parliamentary by-elections. There have been two since we last met. This chart shows every by-election in Great Britain since 1945 and the change in the largest governing party's vote. In most by-elections, the governing party's vote falls. So everyone got very excited about Hartlepool back in May, where the Tories bucked that trend, one of only six government gains at a by-election since 1945. The three by-elections since are more like normal service. Labour held Batley and Spen last week, but a few weeks ago the Lib Dems won Chesham and Amersham from the Tories, meaning of the four by-elections so far this Parliament, two have been holds and two seats have changed hands. Speaking of hands, it was less hands face space and more hands face embrace as Health Secretary Matt Hancock quit over his relationship with someone he first appointed as an advisor and then a non-executive director of his department. With impeccable timing, my IFG colleagues have published a new report on updating the ministerial code. Required reading for a government for whom the Nolan principles consist of being in the mood for dancing, romancing and giving it all tonight. Hancock's eventual resignation means we can turn to our classic ministerial resignation chart. With that, and James Brokenshire stepping down today to focus on his recovery from illness, we wish him well, that's now 13 non-reshuffle resignations under Boris Johnson, the same as under Gordon Brown, but with a faster run rate than anyone else, even Theresa May, just about. 
Just to remind you how mad the last few years have been for ministerial resignations, since England last went out of a major football championship to Croatia in the 2018 World Cup, there have been 36 resignations outside reshuffles, more than in 11 years of Thatcher or 10 years of Blair. There have been 49 since my team, Wales, were knocked out of Euro 2016, and since Wales knocked Northern Ireland out of Euro 2016, that's more than 11 years of Thatcher and six years of Cameron put together. And it's 104 resignations since Scotland were knocked out of France 98, but that was a long time ago. Tony Blair was Prime Minister, some song called Three Lions was top of the charts, and it would be three months before Google was incorporated. That does, of course, bring us nicely to the football. Euro 2020, as UEFA still insist on calling it, because clearly we all long for the treasured memories of 2020. Now, historically, we've become used to Wales as a standard unit of measurement for area, as in an area of rainforest the size of Wales has been destroyed. But during this tournament, the Welsh team's travel exploits from home to Azerbaijan to Italy to the Netherlands mean Wales is now also a unit of distance. Despite playing two fewer matches, they travelled further than any of this week's semi-finalists, around one-fifth of the circumference of the globe. Let's change the units. Denmark have travelled nearly one Wales, Spain two-thirds of a Wales, and Italy and England around one-third of a Wales. I'm not sure football can come home when it's barely played away. Insert your own cabinet minister joke there. Here are some England stats ahead of this evening's semi-final against Denmark. England have played 28 knockout matches in major tournaments, excluding tonight. Most of those have been in World Cups rather than the Euros. Indeed, 11% of all England's knockout matches were at the 1966 World Cup, which I understand England may have won. 29% of England's knockout matches have gone to penalty shootouts, winning two but losing six. Perhaps the most remarkable stat is that England manager Gareth Southgate has been involved in more than a third of England's knockout matches as a player or a manager. Overall, England have won 46% of all knockout matches they've played. Now, obviously, I compared that to Wales in the hope that we'd have a better win percentage. Alas, not. But it's interesting to look at who Wales have lost to in major tournaments. In the 1958 World Cup, we lost to Brazil, who went on to win the tournament. In Euro 2016, we lost to Portugal, who went on to win the tournament. And in Euro 2020, we lost to Denmark, who play England tonight. So good luck, England. You might need it. Turning from 90 minutes or 120, followed by an agonising penalty shootout to eight, our first speaker tonight will be Adam Brocklesby, partner at this evening's sponsors EYUK and I Consulting, on how government can improve policy decisions and citizen services by being insight-led and data-enabled. That will lead us on nicely to our second speaker, Pierre Nunt, Head of Insight and Innovation at the London Borough of Barking and Dagenham. We'll be talking about insight-led action on reducing homelessness and improving financial resilience. We'll then hear from Madeleine Masco, service owner, and Simon Worthington, Chief Data Architect, from the Trading Environment Team at the Department for International Trade on publishing the UK tariff as open data. And last but not least, we'll hear from Ben Lyons, Head of External Affairs and Insight at the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation on public engagement research to scope standards on public sector algorithmic transparency, a very topical subject. There'll be no data bites in August. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 8th of September at 6pm. That's the second Wednesday of the month rather than our usual first. We'll be back to the first Wednesday of the month, starting with Wednesday, the 6th of October. A huge thank you to EY for supporting tonight's event. We're only able to keep Databytes running thanks to the support of our sponsors. <laughs> We're extremely grateful to them tonight. If you'd like to see your name up here in Knights and keep Databytes going, please get in touch with Pratesh. 
If you'd like to see yourself up here giving a presentation or know someone else who should, please drop me an email. We will, as ever, have a quick virtual drink after tonight's data bites, though I won't blame you if you want to prepare for the football instead. We'll put these details up again at the end, but the link is bit.ly slash db21drinks, password ifgdb21, all case sensitive. That's enough of the warm up. Time for kickoff. Adam, over to you to get us underway. Thanks very much, uh, Gavin, and what a uh, fantastic introduction. It's quite difficult uh, to follow that. Um, I should have thought uh, and been more uh, topical, I guess. Um, good evening, uh, everyone. Um, uh, I lead EY's uh, technology consulting uh, practice uh, for government in the UK, uh, and I'm really delighted uh, to speak with you this evening about how government can improve policymaking and service delivery by becoming insight-led and data-enabled. Um, as this is a data forum, I thought it might be a, a bit of fun uh, to frame the discussion around four numbers. So I'm going to talk to uh, 0, 85, 5 and 4. Starting with 0, um, I think the case is really clear that government have a huge opportunity to use data to make better policy decisions, improve service delivery and drive economic value. The first question we should ask ourselves, though, is, what, what is the value of data to government? I'm sure we've all heard lots of narrative around, you know, data being a strategic asset and phrases like, you know, data is the new oil. These imply that there's some intrinsic value to data, but I would make the opposite case and argue that the value of data to government is actually zero. If we just look at the numbers, a study by the Harvard Business Review found that on average, less than half of an organization's structured data is actively used in assisting decision-making. And when looking at unstructured data, less than 1% is analyzed or used at all. Indeed, the NAO reports that government departments spend between 60 and 80% of time in cleaning and merging data. In some departments, this can equate to several hundred analysts time. I actually think we could be better off thinking about data as a liability rather than an asset on government's balance sheet, as there's often significant cost associated with capturing, storing, managing and governing data without a clear return on this investment. This is because the value of data sits not in the data, but in government's ability to understand what insights are needed to support effective decision making and then using analytics to enable the data to provide these insights. So my main message for you this evening is that we need to stop talking about being data driven and start focusing on becoming insight led and data enabled. is the percentage of data initiatives that fail to deliver their return on investment. For more than a decade, public sector organizations have been investing significant sums of money on big data initiatives, but have not achieved the desired outcomes. DDAP functions within government departments have traditionally been the you know, owner and custodians of the data sphere, taking a bottom-up data-driven approach that focuses on governance, data quality, and data management processes. And then in parallel, senior leaders in the department plot their own path fairly independently and, and for the most part have only a limited understanding of the insight that could be generated from the data that the department holds. We must rethink our whole approach. Rather than aggregating lots of data and hoping that insights might appear, we need to start at the other end by first determining what insights can deliver value and then focus on the data needed to generate them. 
So our view from working across a range of clients in this space is that there are five key principles to becoming an insight-led organization. The first is a focus on value. Government departments should invest time to understand the key decisions they need to make, and then consider the insights that are most valuable to support these decisions. These insights should be the starting point that drives data acquisition, data analysis, tech development, and organizational design. Civil servants will need, to, will need a creative mindset to imagine the art of the possible and resist falling into the trap of coming up with ideas that they know are possible and then simply executing them. The ability to ask, what if we could, type questions will become a key skill that government will need to truly become insight-led in the future. The second is to minimize time to insight, which will become increasingly critical to adapt to changing needs of both citizens and businesses. Government departments should look to iteratively prototype in order to test and learn and rapidly develop valuable insights. This approach will de-risk the overall development process compared with a big data program that promises delivery of benefits at the end. It will also help build collective confidence with stakeholders across the organization in the outcomes that will be achieved. Third is the need to support increasing complexity. We need to recognize that generating transformational insights will increasingly require complex data science skills. Government departments should build the capability to support a mixed economy of data exploitation, from the traditional backward-looking dashboards providing descriptive and diagnostic analysis to the forward-looking predictive and prescriptive decision support tools. These insights will often require joining of data sets from across organizational boundaries, including outside of government, and considerations around you know, data sharing, data privacy, security, uh, and ethics all need to be thought through. And engage at scale. For too long, the data and analytics teams have been tucked away in a corner and disconnected from the core business for government departments. We need to move away from lots of proofs of concept that never get taken any further. In order to truly drive this transformation, government departments need to ensure that people, process, and technology are aligned to support an insight-led approach at scale. <clears throat> this ultimately will require solution delivery to, to be combined with organizational change to embed analytics as de uh, decision support capability across the department. And finally, we believe that leadership and culture are absolutely critical. The leaders across government have a key role to play to embed a new culture and shift the mindset of their teams to become insight-led and data-enabled. So I guess um, a lot of what I've spoken about is the change in philosophy and mindset needed uh, by government in order to become truly insight-led. But to bring this back to the practical, what is the first step on this journey? We often help clients conduct a rapid four-week value mapping exercise to build the business case and roadmap to becoming an insight-led organization. Over the course of four weeks, we start with the research to really understand the departmental priorities whilst analyzing the current state insight, data and technology environments. Next, we explore and seek to define opportunities for insight development, identifying the questions being, being made. We then evaluate and test opportunities to determine which insights are the most valuable and prioritize them based on feasibility and complexity of existing and available data. And finally, we assess the, the changes required to enable the transformation and create a business case outlining the benefits, associated costs, and an implementation roadmap to become an insight-led organization. 
So in summary, uh, the current focus by government on the acquisition, standardization, and quality of data risks delaying, or even worse, preventing the realization of value from government investments and data programs. Only by starting at the other end and adopting an insight-led approach can government maximize the benefits that big data offers. Thank you. I'll now open up for questions. Thank you Thank very you. much indeed. Adam, we've got some questions coming in already, but just to remind everybody watching us um, on Slido, you should be able to submit your questions nice and easily, which I'll put to Adam. We've got a few coming in already. Um, the first one is uh, a typically forthright one from Sam at Med Confidential. Uh, evening to you, Sam. He says, EY did an analysis of the value of health data held by the NHS. It valued it in billions. Was the methodology of that report any more rigorous than your value of zero? He asks. Uh, no, it, it, it's entirely aligned. So, and I'm very familiar uh, with the report that, uh, that, that the colleague references. Um, I think this is uh, there's two different um, perspectives on this. The first is, uh, you know, a government department's ability to monetize data and derive, you know, financial value from data through, uh, you know, tra the transparency agenda and sharing, uh, you know, sh uh, sharing of open data. Um, what I'm talking about here is government's ability to use data to effectively um, uh, deliver better services, uh, achieve better po policy outcomes and reduce uh, or improve value for money. So I think, um, you know, I'm deliberately being provocative to, to really drive the, the conversation and the thought process away from viewing data as an asset that needs to be acquired and kept and really um, and encourage government departments to think about, uh, you know, data as a liability, but very similar to the way that, um, you know, manufacturing organisations shifted from from thinking about, um, you know, work in progress as an asset to a liability to really think through um, which data is necessary to be acquired, uh, aggregated and, uh, and analysed uh, to drive real insight. Great. Thanks, Adam. Um, we've got a great question from Anonymous. Evening to you, Anonymous. Glad that you've decided to choose us over the football. Um, how do we deal with government typically not understanding the art of the possible and hence can't even frame the right questions that data could be the answer to? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. I think it's um, I, I think it's very common and we see this see this often across government. Um, it's uh, you know, if I use an example to bring it to life, um, we've recently um, worked with the uh, Cabinet Office to um, establish the Situation Centre to provide situational situational awareness um, across, uh, you know, across government. Um, you know, the 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 trigger, if you like, um, behind the establishment of the Situation Centre was a, a recognition that in the in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, government decision makers often didn't have access to timely information, and reporting was on was on PowerPoint. Um, the, you know, uh, the conversation at the time was how to get more accurate or more more timely PowerPoint. And um, the question around what if was, you know, we posed and helped the cabinet office work through was, you know, what if we could provide um, real time or, or close to real time situational awareness across a range of risks um, on the national strategic risk register. Um, and allow ministers and decision makers the ability to be able to interrogate that data live rather than having to ask questions and come back to a, a separate forum to be able to uh, review the answers to their questions. So I think it's really uh, sort of shifting that mindset um, around, you know, rather than the, the left to right thinking, how do we make what we've got better to the right to left uh, thinking and you know, imagine a future and work back from that. 
Great, thanks. Um, Alvech asks, where do you see your clients prioritising investment in order to being insight-led? Uh, thanks, Al. Uh, really good question. Um, so, so I think in terms of prioritisation of investment, I don't think this is about more investment. Uh, I think this is a, about better return on the, you know, the current and the planned investment. So in terms of prioritisation, I think a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a real strict um, uh, control or challenge uh, to government departments around how they're using data and how they're using insights to make effective decision making. And frankly, if there isn't a clear um, strategic, you know, strategic case for the data that they're seeking to acquire or the assets that they're seeking to develop, then, then frankly, don't do it. Um, I think in most cases, um, you know, government departments uh, have either either have the data or have access to the data that they need in order to inform their insights. Um, but it's it's the exploitation and the um, analysis of the data where they're struggling. So I think this is, um, you know, I think this is about doing. Uh, uh, more for less or more for the same rather than, uh, you know, significant increase in investment. Excellent. Thanks. We've got about three and a half minutes left, so please do keep your questions coming in. Um, got another one from Anonymous, which is how does government overcome data sharing barriers between departments, both in terms of security or permission and in terms of different taxonomies? Yeah. Um, so, so I think there's a couple of um, a couple of angles to this, and I think there are, you know, we should recognise that there are, um, you know, good initiatives that are being taken forward by government to address some of these challenges. So I, I really welcome the creation of the, the central digital and data office in the cabinet office to to encourage sort of data standards and, da and obviously the data standards authority to encourage data sharing uh, across government. Um, I actually think the biggest barriers to data sharing across government are not uh, technical; um, they are cultural. Um, you know, and, and, and again, we've, we've seen this with work with the Joint Biosecurity Centre as part of the Department for Health and Social Care and the Situation Centre that I referred to earlier. And, um, you know, the, the first the first response to the question from one government department to another around you know, sharing data is why do you need it? What will it be used for? Uh, and there's a real concern that um, uh, a party that is not as close to the data will derive insight that is inaccurate or could potentially cause embarrassment. So I think um, being absolutely clear uh, the rationale um, uh, for data sharing um, and building trusted working relationships uh, between the government departments uh, to support data sharing is absolutely key. Um, in a number of, uh, as, as I touched on earlier, you know, a number of the projects that we've been working on recently, we've established um, MAU, MOUs uh, between department, you know, de departments to be able to uh, facilitate that data sharing. Excellent. You've mentioned um, a few initiatives um, over the last few minutes. Um, are there any particularly good examples of where government has successfully adopted an insight-led approach? Um, um, so yes, there are, uh, is the simple answer. Um, and and um, uh, PA has got a great example from Barking and Dagenham coming up, so I won't steal his thunder. Um, you know, if I uh, choose another example, um, you know, we've worked with um, Aidstone uh, Borough Council to support their transform transformation towards a preventative service model. So we worked with them on a new approach for, for tackling homelessness by using data and analytics tools to bring together data from different areas uh, to identify uh, those at risk of future homelessness uh, and enable the council to understand their services in a holistic way. 
Um, I mean, ultimately, this transformed the way in which uh, vulnerable groups were supported. And over the course of, um, uh, you know, effectively, we helped identify households three to six months before reaching crisis point. And within 12 months, Maidstone had achieved a 40% reduction in homelessness through risk alerts and enabling um, you know, proactive support for those, those at risk. Perfect. In the 20 seconds we've got left, I'm going to squeeze in a final question. Um, you mentioned that leadership and culture are really important. What should leaders across government do to support those sort of cultural uh, transformations to being an insight-led organisation? Um, yeah, great question. Um, and I think we, we touched on this on, in an earlier question around, um, you know, around what, what could be learned from, from other sectors. You know, I, I think there's, there's probably three things I'd say to this. Um, the first is... Um, you know, lead from the top. So, uh, you know, in the private sector, most successful leaders uh, are those who recognise the power of data and insight to create some kind of competitive in, uh, advantage around the products and services uh, that they offer. So I think kind of take that uh, learning from the private sector and apply it to the to the public sector. I think the, the, the second thing is, um, you know, empower and upskill uh, the wider team. So not just the, the data analysts, um, you know, enable... Um, you know, broader training to increase civil service, civil servants' comfort with using data and insights in their everyday roles. There's often scepticism that will need to be overcome around, uh, you know, augmented decision making, and that in some way, um, you know, going against uh, individual, um, you know, uh, an individual caseworker's um, skill and experience, and, and make clear that there is an opportunity to augment that. And then I think the the, the final thing I would say is, you know, I would encourage uh, leaders to. Um, create a learning organization you know i touched on earlier uh, you know um, the uh, importance or the importance of you know rapid research testing and prototyping and i think leaders should help develop a culture where risk taking is accepted and that mistakes are viewed as part of part of that learning journey thank you i'm sure we could spend lots more time digging into all of those things unfortunately we're now out of it but adam thank you very much for getting us off to such a great start this evening thank you thanks Kevin. thanks all and um, Adam mentioned um, some of the work of uh, Barking and Dagenham. We're going to hear more about that now. So, PA, over to you. Thank you very much, Gavin. Uh, good evening, all. My name is PA, and uh, I'm the head of insight and innovation at Barking and Dagenham Council, uh, where I lead a team of data scientists, behavioural scientists, and uh, service designers. Uh, and our team's mission statement is turning data into insight-led action. Um, I firstly want to express my uh, gratitude to the Institute of Government and Gavin in particular for inviting me to share a little part of our data transformation story today. Uh, and also my thanks to uh, EY and Adam for uh, the, the shout out there, uh, but also for sponsoring the event and also because EY uh, have been our uh, implementation partner uh, for uh, the case study that I'll be presenting today. So uh, great to share a virtual stage uh, with you all. Um, Right, so this is us. Um, uh, Barking Dagenham uh, is an East London borough with a population of 212,000 residents and according to the index of multiple deprivation, uh, we're the most deprived London borough and one of the poorest places uh, in, in the UK. And we have plenty of challenges. Uh, a benchmarking exercise back in 2017 showed that 
our residents uh, experience sadly some of the worst outcomes uh, across uh, London. Uh, however, we have been improving um, and uh, in the London League tables uh, in the past couple of years. Now, part of the reason for improvement uh, has been the insight-led approach uh, that has helped us design solutions that meet our residents' needs. And um, what I'm about to show today isn't, isn't a pilot, it isn't a proof of concept, it is organisational, wide change um, and uh, leadership. So we, we started off by um, changing the council structure and putting uh, data and insight at the heart of everything we do. So one of those little blobs there is uh, me and my wonderful team. Um, and we have been working uh, endlessly to do a lot of proactive um, uh, pr and predictive work uh, in a service block called Community Solutions, uh, which is um, by far sort of the largest people-based uh, service block that is there to help prevent uh, vulnerable residents from getting into um, uh, more acute statutory um, services. And com Community Solutions does three things. Uh, it, it, it fosters resilience and independence, uh, it resolves early and it aims to uh, reduce demand, um, which generates savings uh, for the council, but importantly, better outcomes for our residents. Um, and speaking of um, resolving early, in order to do that, uh, we need to understand uh, the root causes of uh, people's uh, uh, acute need. Uh, and this is our much beloved in the organisation wheel of inference uh, that my team developed a few years ago. Um, and it attempts to look at a huge number of caseload data across the organisation and find the root causes of why those individuals have come into uh, very high and acute needs. So I'm drawing your attention here to um, a case study today around debt. Uh, and we found that people with council tax debt are three times more likely to become homeless and two times more likely to have children that are neglected. Homelessness and neglected children being a huge um, uh, cost implication for local authorities, not to mention the um, uh, physiological and mental burden that has that has for for vulnerable people. So how does all of that fit together? Well, uh, within Community Solutions, a team was developed called uh, the the Homes and Money Hub, and the Homes and Money Hub essentially does attracts people through two ways. One through um, frankly, serendipitous activity, where it's based in a particular area and residents can walk in um, who may have a need and uh, can seek support on housing and money issues. Um, but the element that I want to talk about is the predictive element. Um, so how we deployed uh, predictive analytics in the Homes and Money Hub to find uh, the, the, the residents with the most amount of need um, and support them through uh, better outreach targeted activity. Um, so via our uh, platform called OneView, which is a single view of uh, a resident and a household, we have a multitude of data, some of which is uh, you, you see on the screen there, 
Um, and what we're able to do through OneView is identify cohorts of vulnerable residents um, that may be in experiencing some financial difficulty and therefore um, likely uh, or are on the brink of potentially becoming homeless. Uh, and uh, what we've been able to do is um, send behaviorally informed uh, nudges or text messages for those for those of you who are interested in behavioral science um, as a discipline. And uh, we've been able to uh, convince those residents to come in for a chat with a, a caseworker in the council who has been able to um, help them uh, prevent uh, prevent uh, an eviction or become homeless. Um, and there are many residents out there who are also uh, not seeking the the, uh, the benefits or welfare that um, are actually uh, available to them. So OneView has helped us to do that. Now, um, if you multiplied that by over 4,000 residents, um, uh, or uh, probably 8,000 text messages later, um, what that has led to is uh, over 130 homeless preventions, an 81% decrease in evictions from temporary accommodation, a 12% reduction in new temporary accommodation placements, and which saving the authority um, £3.8 million over two years. And I believe we're now on track um, to save £5 million in the coming years. Finally, the outcome uh, is over the past couple of years that we've had this um, deployed is that our homelessness applications have been um, reducing uh, in all wards except one. Um, and these have further context, these have reduced uh, despite local authorities having more responsibility under the Homelessness uh, Reduction Act. And um, that's a story, or a little part of our data transformation story of how we've been using data, insight and predictive analytics uh, to help those most in need embarking Dagenham. Thank you ever so much. Brilliant. Thank you very much, PA. And um, just to remind everybody, if you would like to put questions to PA, and there's lots in there to dig into, um, please do uh, do it using the Slido. So um, we've actually got a question, which I think is probably um, designed for one of our later speakers, but I'm going to put it to you as well, PA. Um, <clears throat> this is from Robert Teal, who um, is sort of saying, if insiders or AI uh, can predict with reasonable accuracy the eventual outcome of a course of events in the public sphere, like planning approval or an out-of-court settlement, is it not a moral imperative to allow the citizens to see the data and likelihood of success in our action or application? So I suppose there's, a, there's an interesting question there about how, how do you talk to residents about um, how, how their data is being used, the algorithms and so on? Yes, um, thanks for that really important question. Um, what we've done as an organisation is um, create a data ethics and transparency charter, which is available on our um, website for residents to, to see. Um, the important thing to just to mention as well is that what OneView does and our, our what, what we call here is predictive analytics is not a it's not an algorithm that makes a decision about an individual. Uh, it essentially just pulls together uh, what a previously disparate um, data set and surfaces it to a caseworker who then does an outreach. So there isn't a, uh, a there, there is no algorithmic decision making in this in in, in this. Um, uh, but the point 
the, the point is still very valid uh, and it's and it's important that we engage with our residents to do so. So we've done that through a number of different ways. Uh, one is publishing a data ethics and transparency charter um, to having um, some sort of independent um, research work done on a lot of our um, projects um, that are independently published um, and also just sort of uh, holding public forums where residents um, and the uh, uh, particularly councillors, members um, are able to um, exercise a level of overview and scrutiny on what we're doing. And the last thing I'll say on this is uh, it's also really important to know that uh, what we're doing here is not beyond our statutory duty of care. Uh, so just because we've deployed um, uh, better analytical tools does not uh, make us uh, fall out of our statutory du uh, duty of care. We're still doing. We're basically still doing the work that we are meant to be doing uh, for vulnerable people, uh, but just in a far more efficient way. Brilliant, thanks. Um, we've got some questions coming in. So this one's from Anonymous. Again, already very busy this evening. Um, how do residents respond when you reach out proactively? Um, and is the impact that you have on them long term? Uh, I'll tell you a bit of a funny story. Uh, when we when we first um, did the cohort identifi identification, we did the very typical local authority thing of sending a letter. Um, so we went, dear so and so, um, uh, we could help with your financial difficulties, etc. Come and have a chat. Uh, the response rate we got, and I, I mean this by no exaggeration whatsoever, was zero. Uh, no, um, we didn't get anybody responding to that. But when we moved to the text messaging um, uh, sort of uh, behavioural nudges, uh, that response rate came up to 50%. So for every two two messages we sent out, we got um, a resident, uh, one resident booking to see a caseworker, and um, uh, outcomes were achieved. And there was, and I'll I'll pick one one that we kind of personally saw uh, a, a lady that we identified who uh, was a, a single mum, low income. Um, uh, single uh, single parent um, and uh, sort of um, I think it was on universal credit um, and uh, the caseworker actually helped that individual um, prepare a better CV to get into a higher paying job um, they also um, realized that there was more um, benefit and welfare opportunities for them and so in the space of the first half hour of um, that individual coming into the Homes and Money Hub, they walked away uh, in a much better position. They are still, they were at risk of becoming homeless. Um, they are still in their own home uh, with um, better benefits and a better paying job to keep them there. Excellent. Um, we've got another question from Anonymous, which I suppose is, is the other side of some of that, which is, do you have any metrics on the false negatives, um, the cases that are not currently deemed needing intervention, but actually could have been helped if it was carried out? Yes, yeah, so um, this is this is, um, is, is an interesting question because it, 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 um, it's really about what's within our duty of care. So how, how do professionals deem risk? Is, is somebody with a £10,000 debt more at risk of homelessness than somebody with a £500 um, debt. So what we we leave that really to the professionals to decide. Um, I think in our experience, what we've seen is the better outcomes of, for prevention of 
homelessness and, evi and, and eviction from private, the private rental sector. And um, this is purely embarking in Dagenham. I don't know if this particular nuance applies elsewhere. Is um, residents with um, smaller amounts of council tax and social housing rent arrears debt um, that is consistent as opposed to people with large amount, like large quantifiable amounts of debt. Um, and that's because there's a much easier intervention uh, and support package uh, available to them. So um, that's a that's something that's played out in 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 B and D. Um, but that is totally up to the you know the people who are who are um, uh, qualified social workers or professionals to to deal with. Excellent. And um, we've got a question from Acer, which I have to say was a question that I was going to ask a version of as well. Um, do you think your borough's approach could be successfully extrapolated to other boroughs or areas to help deal with similar issues? And also, do you think boroughs could work together better in order to benefit from the approaches they develop individually to help those in their area? I I wholeheartedly believe so and, and hope it does actually happen. Uh, I think that there are a couple of things in order to scale that or replicate that model across um, other other boroughs across the across the country, um, uh, one is uh, the desire and um, obsession with uh, prevent early intervention um, uh, and uh, helping vulnerable people live uh, more resilient uh, and independent lives. Um, as well as helping people out of crises, and 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 I, do, I I you know every single local authority has a statutory obligation to do that, but uh, beyond the statutory obligation, an inherent um, focus on prevention I think is is a really really important part of it, because um, I could say the answer is have really good data, have really good do insight and analytics really well, hire a bunch of data scientists or behavioural scientists, that is not necessarily the answer. That is a mechanism to get to the answer. But the desire to uh, prevent situations from getting worse or more acute, the, the, the desire to keep people in their own homes, that is really, really important. Um, and I think you need every local authority needs to have a very strong focus on, on, on prevention and the tools of data analytics, insight, behavioral science, service design basically slot into that. And rather rather than be a, a, a standalone um, uh, nice to have in a local authority. And that was my point of putting the our organisational structure up because uh, you can see how we play a very important role in the rest of the organisation supporting it. Um, I'm going to squeeze one final question. So you've got about 30 seconds to answer this. Um, Heather Neat asks, what are your plans for your data sharing system? Would you like to add more external data into the mix? We currently don't have any external data in the mix. Um, so some of our work around debt is purely around debt to the local authority as opposed to to, to others. Um, I, I see that as a potential uh, in the future, but there is still so much to be done and uh, maximised in terms of utility of our own data sets before we go anywhere near um, someone, uh, you know, a, an external data source. So still plenty to be done. Um, and this is a couple of years in the making, but we've still got a long way to go and a lot more people to help. Well, Pierre, we'll have to have you back uh, when those plans have developed even further. But it was great to hear from you tonight. Thank you very much for joining us. Real pleasure. Thank you. So it's half time in tonight's Data Bytes and it's presentations given two, presentations to come two. 
And the next of those presentations is Madeline and Simon from the Department for International Trade on publishing the UK tariff as open data. So over to you, Madeline and Simon. Thank you, Gavin, and thank you for, for inviting us to talk tonight. So I'm going to start by setting the scene as to why we were creating this data in the first place. So as you know, the, the UK formally left the European Union in January of last year. We entered a transition period which lasted until the 31st of December 2020. And during that time, the, the government led by Department for International Trade built the UK trade tariff or customs tariff, um, which records the taxes, also known as duties and controls to be applied on imports and exports at the UK border. The, the tariff is considered critical national information. I often describe it as part of the UK's border infrastructure because the data itself is critical to the functioning of the border. And also importantly, it powers decisions for, for traders. So coming to the end of the transition period, and of course, since the 1st of January, uh, many, many traders will, will need to use the data to make decisions. So for example, is it still viable for me to import cars from Japan as a business if the new import tariff is 10%? And a big, a big part of what we did during this time was also to explore how to make the tariff available to the people who need it. So that includes those individual traders, but it's also logistics companies, third party software providers and so on. So we've um, we've been through a few trial runs of this. You, you may remember that in 2019 there were a few occasions on which the the UK nearly crashed out of the European Union without a deal. If that had happened, the UK's trading terms with the EU would have been MFN or Most Favoured Nation Rates, also known as WTO rules, which essentially means we charge the same duties to any country that we don't have a trade agreement with, which would have included the EU. That would have created a fairly significant economic shock. So the government introduced what was called the temporary tariff regime to mitigate the impact of this, which um, basically reduced the duty on, on a range of selected imports. So the question was, how do we publish this? Um, and attempt number one was as content tables. So once our, our team got confirmation of the, the rates and was told to, to publish them for, for public consumption, our content team worked around the clock to copy and paste that data into a guidance page on gov.uk. So it, it did the job, it made the information available, but news was, was made of this being a 1,500-page document that was hard for traders to wade through, which was a fairly fair criticism. So we, we, we learned a lot from this. Um, tables uh, pasted as content doesn't meet user needs. So the next time we had an opportunity to publish tariff information, which was in May 2020, uh, we did it as a proper kind of lookup tool and service. So what was announced at this point was the UK's uh, future at that point, MFN rates, so those third country duties that I referred to earlier. And we, we knew based on the experience last time around that most users want to search for a small number of rates rather than seeing everything. And we designed it in a way which meant that they could search by description, um, by keywords and by a commodity code or, or part of a commodity code. 
So this was much easier to use than, than a huge document for the individual traders, but it still left as a question with which was what to do about the power users. So I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Simon, to explain what a power user is and what we did for them. Thank you, Madeline. Um, so yeah, we hypothesized there were two groups, um, the individuals and the power users. And the power users we thought were um, other nations, um, other government departments, big companies that do a lot of logistics for lots of different products. Um, and they were split between analysis users, so people trying to use the data to make decisions, and operational users, so people who needed to use the data to actually clear their goods at the border. Um, and our hypothesis basically was that these users need all the data in bulk. Um, you know, we can offer an API, we can offer the service, but actually what they need is to take all the data, go away, use it, and load it into their systems. Um, so what we did was we made all the data available as a bulk download uh, via an API um, in a spreadsheet format, um, because our hypothesis was that a lot of people would, would find that the most familiar thing to use. Um, and this was quite significant for us because it was, it was only DIT's fifth ever open data set and our first to ever be actually about trade. We published transparency information before, um, but this was, yeah, our first ever open data set released in bulk. Um, and the feedback on this was, was generally quite good. We had lots of hits on the service and we had 7,000 downloads of the data. Now, I'm not gonna claim that number of downloads is necessarily a good metric to measure how good data is. Uh, I'll just like kick that one off. Um, but I think um, what it did show is that there were people who were coming to use this and we had lots of anecdotal feedback from individuals um, coming to our support lines and our feedback request form um, that they were asking questions about the data and they were using it. Um, so we knew that this was working. Um, but as Madeline said at the start, actually, this was just the base rates. This was just the, the sort of WTO rule rates um, that you would get. Um, and actually, the full tariff is much more. It covers all the trade agreements, the free trade agreements we have. It covers suspensions. It covers quotas and all sorts of other bits of data as well. Um, and a lot of the questions we started to get were about where the other rates are. Um, so we published a second open data set. Um, which was actually not just the base rates, but everything that we um, that we had certainty on up until that point. Um, and again, we followed the same principles. We made it a bulk download uh, and it was available in spreadsheet formats because that's what we thought that our users wanted. Um, and again, this was generally quite good. Uh, we had a feedback call with a big shipping company and they said, yeah, this is really nice. We want to use this to load it into our systems, which was actually not really something we expected. Um, but actually, we don't want what you've given us. We want something slightly different. So we produced a third open data set, um, which was exactly what they wanted. And actually, that's the one that um, a lot of people now come and download because it gives them a, a richer view of the data. It shows them actually what applies at the border at any, any given time. And we've had really positive feedback from this. Um, so supermarkets, freight carriers, even you know, government departments in our own government have come to us and said, yeah, this is really helpful. Um, this is really easy to use. Um, so where do we go from here? I think, well, I think the thing that was really interesting for us was that we did a, a firebreak project. So this was a one week project, um, just to kind of see something, see, see if we can do something, see if it works. And one of the things we were able to do was to, uh, produce a system that can send live links of the filtered data. And that was very much a stab in the dark. But what we found is that actually it opened it up. The fact that the data was open and that they could do this suddenly meant that all our policy teams were like, oh, well, that's great. We don't need to like scrabble around anymore to find and put together spreadsheets for all this stuff to send to Turkey and Mexico. We can just send them a link using this tool 
and they can go and download the data as and when they need it, and it'll always be up to date. And this was a, a user need that we didn't know about, and we had no like no plan to build something for. But suddenly, just by the fact that data was there and it was open, it opened up a lot of um, a lot of value. So back to Madeline for what's next. Yes. So just to to finish off, um, we've had lots of good feedback. As Simon has said, we've already had specific feedback which we've been able to act on. Um, examples include how, how people can self-serve their own specific requests and how to make recent changes to the tariff uh, visible. But we, we have more coming in and we want to find out more. Um, and we also particularly want to figure out uh, a more efficient way of meeting the long tail of user needs, by which we mean the very specific ones, which take just as long as, as, as serving the, the kind of mass needs. So as we go into the questions, we'd also welcome any feedback or suggestions that that you have and if you uh, also want to contact us afterwards we, we'd welcome we'd welcome your your views on that so thank you i think we're on to questions now brilliant thank you both very much and um yes just a reminder to everybody you can submit questions via slido uh, so please do keep them coming in uh, there are so many different angles that i want to ask questions about based on that so i'm going to start with um you talked quite a lot about user testing and i think in one of the blog posts that you've um, published about this work as well you sort of talked about how this can be really complicated so you've been working with your sort of content colleagues to try to make it as easy as possible for for users so i just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about how you've been working with those very different sets of users to try to communicate things as, as clearly as possible sure uh, madeline would you like to say that one or shall i um, do you want to have a go at it first, Simon? Okay, I'll have a go at it first. Um, so, yeah, that's there's there's a lot there's a lot there to unpack actually. So, uh, on the the service front, that we did a lot of work on the um, the service that we showed you to to try and work out um, how do we actually explain this really complicated stuff um, to individual traders. Um, so, we, yeah, we had a lot of content design involvement there, um, breaking down terms like trade remedies you know if you don't if you don't do anything with trade you probably don't know what a trade remedy is um but for the first time there are a lot of individuals who are suddenly having to think about what um what a lot of these trade concepts mean um to them and and to their business or to their exporting or their importing um so so the content team put in a lot of effort into trying to break down those terms and to make the the table that we produced as clear as possible um i think what we've seen going forward is that what, some of the user research that we've done has shown that um, the understanding of the data uh, varies quite a lot across the board. Um, so it's, um, it, it, you know, you can get someone who is working with that data every day and they're very knowledgeable on it, but you can also get someone who doesn't work with that data ever or very much at all. And they've been asked to do something with that data and they just don't know where to start because it's such a big thing. It's so complicated, you know, where do I begin? So one of the things we are looking to do is um, see if we can explain more of the concepts uh, around the data with some documentation. You know, we have some metadata there, but actually proper documentation about how it works is the sort of thing that will open it up to more users. Ultimately, it's bringing that bar down to um, to make it more, more valuable to people. Yeah, and I think one thing I would add is it, it's fair to say that some of our, what you might call user research was more like uh, very honest feedback from uh, the likes of the British Retail Consortium who, who told us uh, what they what they needed early on. So 
um, yeah, a, a lot of what we know, particularly around the, the needs of those power users that Simon talked about, um, the, the kind of the Sainsbury's, the, the UPSs, uh, that their needs around the data to, came, came, from, came through those kind of forums. Excellent, thank you. Um, we've got a question from Mary Susan Barry. Evening to you, Mary Susan. Have you done any show and tells to other government departments? And again, I wonder if you might be able to say a bit more about sort of working cross government with colleagues from other departments in general um, as well, because obviously there were lots of departments uh, involved in some trade issues. Um, in the main show and tell we've done was uh, Simon and I presented at Civil Service Live. Was it was it last week? I think so. And um, that's. Uh, the ultimate cross-government show and tell because it um, it brings together thousands of, of civil servants from from across the piece, but we we haven't individually reached out to to other departments to present this work. But having said that, in in the build-up to it, um, we we work very closely with the other departments involved in tariffs, so HMRC, DEFRA, the Jersey and Guernsey administrations, and so on. And I think on the um... On the point about um, no, I've gone. I've forgotten what, what I've got on the second half of your question was, Gavin. Um, just working cross government with colleagues oh, in yeah. general, given how many are involved in trade. Yeah, that's right. So um, the feedback, actually, a lot of the more valuable feedback that we've got has been from other government departments saying, "Oh, actually, you know, we're using your tables, by the way. You know, we haven't told you, um, but actually, we found them and we're downloading them and we're using them." Um, but would it be possible for you to explain how this works or would it be possible for you to um, to produce something bespoke for us because we're getting a lot of value out of it being you know a spreadsheet or uh, you know available in a format that is accessible to us but we could do with something that's slightly different um, and that's when it comes back to that like meeting the long tail you know how do we let more of those users self-serve um, but definitely there is an element of well, if a government department is coming to us and saying we we need this, then um, there's a reasonable shout that actually there are other users out there who would also benefit from that. And I think there's lots of opportunities coming from other government departments to say, actually, we could produce a fourth data set which only shows these things. And, and that feedback is really valuable. Excellent, thanks. Um, Anonymous asks, are there any international examples that have similar tools for users? And is there anything to learn from others? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, I think what, what I mean one of the one of the examples that we hold up some internally is uh, New Zealand. So, New Zealand have a very digital, um, digital first like tariffs system, trade system. One of the big advantages of the New Zealand system is that uh, it it actually makes the the database the source of the law, whereas in British law you have to put together a bit of paper and put it on legislation.gov.uk and put it through Parliament every time you want to change tariff rates. Um, this is exactly as burdensome as it sounds. Um, it's, you know, there, there are some good reasons to do it, um, but ultimately there, there are some good questions being asked about, you know, could we do a New Zealand style approach where we make the database the, the actual authority in law about what the tariff is? And that would save a lot of time. It, save us putting things into PDFs that we know people don't need or don't use or are not accessible to them at least. Um, and I think that would be a good example to, to copy. Great. Um, we've got about a minute and a half left. I'm going to try and squeeze in um, two questions. If you keep answers short, that would be great. Um, T. Wright asks, 
does this provide an opportunity to look at simplifying the trade and tariff system away from EU bureaucracy? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the answer is that it it does. Um, I think that's a I think that's a thing that we'd like to do generally. Um, not speaking for the whole department, but I think there is definitely an effort on the data side to make that data simpler, make it easier to understand, um, and to think about okay, actually, if you're a trader and you're approaching this data, you know, either via a service or via the bulk download, how do you how do I understand it? And actually trying to put in more information to make that that journey easier and slicker. Um, so I think there's definitely a lot we can do in the data to improve and make it more self-describing, I suppose. Um, yes, I would agree with that. Great. And a final question, and I knew somebody was going to ask this. This is anonymous again. Um, do you have a favourite tariff code? <laughs> um, uh, Madeline, have you got a favourite tariff code? I, I think um, my... My favourite is probably, um, what is it, 0101200000, which is asses, uh, and that's donkeys, for those of you out there. So the only thing I wanted to add is, in super tariff geek form, our team have, uh, we, we now name our development sprints after uh, a after a product from the commodity code classification running in alphabetical order. Uh, so we're, what are we currently on, Simon? Uh, egg. Yeah, Eve, Eve Egg, and I don't know the uh, product code off by heart, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, fantastic. Thank you both very much indeed. And um, I know we, we've also had a question in about um, being able to access Department for International Trade webinars, um, but we'll put you in touch um, offline about that. But um, Madeline and Simon, thank you very much for, for joining us, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from Department for International Trade in the future as well. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. So now we turn to our final uh, speaker that's this evening, and that is Ben from the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation. So, Ben, over to you. Thank you so much, Gavin. Um, and it's great to be here today. I'm conscious that I'm now the only thing standing between you and the football. So I promise for all our states, I'll be sticking to the eight minutes. Um, so, um, for those who don't know us already, the CDI is an expert body that's focused on the trustworthy adoption of data-driven technologies, including AI. Um, and we sit within DCMS, but work across the wider public and private sector. Um, and one of our recent projects has been to work with the central digital and data office in the cabinet office on public engagement into a standard for algorithmic transparency. Uh, which is one of the commitments in the national data strategy and transparency is you know clearly something which is which is very important but relatively little work has been done to date to explore what meaningful transparency of algorithms looks like in the uk public sector so there is um you know th th there's been a lot of of um what kind of expectations on, on on transparency but 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 little work in terms of exploring with the public what what public expectations are um, so, um, in terms of the objectives for this work, um, the, the key objectives were to explore which measures would be most effective at increasing both public understanding and public trust over the use of algorithms in the public sector. And we worked um, to recruit a sample with our with our partners at Britain Thinks, um, a, a sample of 36 participants from across the UK. 
And we aim to get a variety of people across a range of demographics, attitudes, understanding, and personal experience of, of some of the case studies that we, that we looked at. Um, we explored three case studies um, and three, kind of three use cases, essentially, to bring this subject matter to life and explore the tensions and the trade-offs. Um, so first, there was a recruitment case study which looked at public, a public sector body that was, you know, fictitiously uh, uh, using a algorithmic tool to shortlist candidates for a job interview. A second um, fictional case study was around a police um, a police force using an algorithmic tool to decide where to allocate police officers. Uh, and then our third uh, case study was a, around a local authority using an algorithmic tool to analyze number plates without a valid local parking permit. So diff different levels of, of, um, of impact here and different, and different uh, we, we expected and, and found different levels of public concern. Um, and there are, there are nine key findings that I want to leave you with today from the work. So I'll run through them now. Um, um, and and, and I just said quickly that uh, in terms of the methodology, we worked over, over three phases. So we worked um, in a deliberative way um, uh, to bring the participants back on, on, on three different occasions so we could really explore the, the issues in detail. Um, so in terms of the, of the key findings from the work, first, um, we found that uh, awareness of two of the key elements of this topic, so both algorithms and broader transparency in the public sector, had very low levels of knowledge amongst the public. Um, so there is almost no awareness about the use of algorithms in the public sector, apart from um, a, a couple of salient um, use cases. Um, and there is also um, very limited spontaneous understanding, at least, of why transparency would be important in a public sector context. Now, that's not to say that people don't think it, transparency isn't important once they understand the stakes, but it takes, it's, it's not something that's, that's front of mind. Second, um, people don't expect to engage with transparency information in their day-to-day -day lives. So, once introduced to these examples of potential uh, use cases, people became more engaged, um, but they still felt that in their daily lives, they would be unlikely to make use of this sort of information um, about the use of an algorithm. Um, and it's not something that's, that's front of mind. This changes when something personally goes wrong or they personally have a concern. So people don't expect, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, that you know, people don't expect to be kind of going through uh, repositories of algorithms um, in, their, in their spare time, but they feel they would only be looking to engage with this sort of information once something um, went wrong. Uh, third, trust is highly related to the use case. So this mirrors work that we and others have done previously, but we found that trust was correlated with the scenarios in which um, in, in, in which data is being used and, and a sense of what could go um, in, in a sense of both the, uh, the perceptions of the potential risk um, created by deploying an algorithm in a given use case, um, and also perceptions of the potential severity of impact uh, if an unfavorable outcome occurs. Fourth, um, we found that in principle, people believe that all categories of information um, should be available somewhere online. Um, so people felt that for something to be meaningfully transparent, 
um, it's important that as much information as possible is made available. Um, and there was a sense that making the categories information um, list, list, list on this slide um, would, would all be important for participants in terms of um, being able to, to be sure that the, that the right information was, was out there. Um, and, and, and there was a sense that even if, even if they did not necessarily think that they would be looking to find this information always, that it should be out there in the public domain. Fifth, um, we found that these sorts of transparency standards with, with you know, repositories of available information could increase public understanding and trust. Uh, so making information available um, could, um, could, it, could, in, it could increase trust, but ultimately, given that this is a, a very low engagement topic, simply having information available is unlikely to have a substantial impact on public knowledge and trust because few members of the public would know to seek it out. And so it's, it's more, um, it's, it's, it's more in, in terms of some of the, the accountability that's established if things, if things go wrong, um, um, where, where people see there's particular benefits. Um, so six, one, one of the more interesting findings I felt was that um, people thought that taking more active steps to signpost information to people in these higher risk, higher impact use cases would be particularly beneficial to build understanding and trust. So people felt that where you know where, where there are more challenging um, examples of algorithms being used, they wanted to have information available to them um, in at the point of interaction, um, um, as, as well as in a repository. Um, seventh, in this sort of more active communication, there were three categories of information that people really prioritised. There was a sense that people um, wanted a two-tiered approach where some information, so a description of the algorithm, its purpose, how to access more information, was more important to people than, um, than having uh, all the information available in this active way. So people prioritised um, kind of cognitive ease over, over maximum information. Um, people um, also expected some information about the quality of an algorithm. Um, and finally, the point I'll, I'll leave you with is that people also prioritised accessibility. So there was a sense um, that it isn't just about what information you have out there, but it's ensuring that it's accessible and usable. And this was something which people felt was increasingly important uh, as they explored the topic in more detail. So thanks very much. That's it. I look forward to your questions. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Ben. Lots of really interesting findings and we're getting some great questions coming in already. Um, so do keep them coming. I'm going to start with um, another forthright question from Sam from Med Confidential, who notes that the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, um, the previous chair, um, his other role was um, it being involved in the A-level algorithm debacle. Um, so he asks, why should anyone in government or elsewhere have confidence in Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation outputs, given that sort of crossover? Okay, thank you. I mean, so. Roger, Roger um, Taylor, our, our previous chair, has just completed his his term as as chair, and um, you know while, while I can't comment on on that specific case, um, there is you know clearly a need to help organisations in the public sector to responsibly innovate in their use of of algorithms, and that's something which we are placing an increasing emphasis on in our work. So um, we brought out a two-year review earlier this week and 
one of the things that we really emphasised in that is the importance of translating um, theoretical frameworks about what good practice looks like into um, into real world practical steps. Um, and so, um, you know, what what that means in practice is we are working with with organisations across the public sector um, to help them to to build the sorts of governance, um, both both kind of governance at the level of things like, trans like transparency, but also a range of other steps around, around accountability, around empowering users, um, and some of these mechanisms um, at a more technical level, such as privacy enhancing technologies, um, such as trustworthy models for data stewardship, um, to ensure that, um, that the public sector is building governance that, that, that is worthy of the public's trust. Um, in terms of the way in which we're we're going we're going about it, we are um, trying to build a a expert team uh, which includes people with experience both in both in, um, in 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 skills such as data policy, but also um, work in public engagement such as this project in in different futures. And we'll we'll shortly be announcing um, a refreshed board for the CDI uh, to provide. Um, greater to essentially steer us into our into our next stage. Excellent, thank you. Um, question from Edward: Why do you think transparency wasn't front of mind for people when you were talking to them? Interesting question. I mean, so I think um, I think essentially people didn't necessarily. Um, I think I, 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 I think I think I think potentially what it is is that and one of the challenges with these public engagement projects that you know we find is is that there is a certain there is a certain kind of approach around around public policy where we tend to think in these fairly abstract um, ideas around things such as public um, the importance of public sector transparency um, and that kind of isn't how people live their day to day lives um, people. Um, don't don't like it when they feel that there is information, or when, when they feel that something is going wrong, and they don't know um, they don't know why that's happening, or they can't um, or they can't challenge a decision they feel as unfair, and then information is presenting being presented to them. But but you kind of need to get into that use case um, and that's and that sense of what the jeopardy is in order to to make it real to people who haven't who haven't thought about these issues in depth so i mean so that, that, was, that was one of the things that was important to us in the in the design phase really was to was to um really kind of explore these case studies and develop them with people in some detail so they could really think through like you know what are the opportunities here but also what are what are the risks and why would it be a problem if there wasn't information available if something went wrong Thanks. And the next question follows on quite nicely from that, actually, which is uh, again from Anonymous, who's been very busy tonight. Uh, the ICO report, that's the Information Commissioner's Office report on online harms, has shown that most individuals are very bad at assessing the risk of organisations using their data. Should there be a regulator that can assess and license specific use cases and is getting the public to trust it a more tractable problem? Um, so, so, so I think but I, I think that there already is a, a regulator in, um, you know, data protection regulator in, in, in the form of the ICO, and 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 clearly um, 
there's the online harms um, or, or, or online safety um, regulatory duties that are going to going to Ofcom. Um, I think um, I don't think there is necessarily a need for for a new regulator, um, but I think in the in the context of the public sector, um, there is a need to be able to um, more clearly explain to people what good what good looks like and and give organisations an ability to to know um, how to take a lofty idea like transparency and and translate that into something that um, delivers people what what they want and and I suppose um, you know an, an important point to make is that um, the public are a really important stakeholder group in terms of in terms of algorithmic transparency, but they are not the only stakeholder group. So, um, you know, so the CDDO in the Cabinet Office um, have been running a lot of workshops um, with civil society groups um, and, and and also um, people within within the public sector. Um, and what works for the public in terms of transparency might be slightly different to what works for, for say expert, you know, expert civil society groups, or you know, or people who are who are campaign groups, for example, you know. So, so um, there may be, and one of the things we found was, you know, was that the public don't necessarily want, or don't necessarily find it useful to have a huge amount of information. They would they would optimize for understanding and explainability over the depth of information. Whereas, you know, someone someone like like Sam or Anonymous perhaps might you know might want um, a greater amount of technical information to be able to really scrutinise uh, the decision making process. So I think um, that that's um, one of one of the trade offs that this work will need to explore. Thanks. Um, and we had that question from Robert Teal from earlier that I put to PA, but um, I'll run through it for you as well, Ben, which is if AI can predict with reasonable accuracy the eventual outcome of a course of events in the public sphere, such as planning approval or, or out of court settlement, is it not a moral imperative to allow the citizens to see the data and likelihood of success um, that they might have in their action or application? Which I think also follows quite, flows quite nicely into another question from Anonymous, which is what do you think are the next steps? Because um, you did sort of outline some of the things that people would like to see in terms of transparency around these things. Yeah, um, so I might mind the second one first. So uh, in terms of next steps, um, you know, this, this was this was a commitment within the National Data Strategy um, and you know, we'll be working closely with the CDDO on, on the next steps. But what CDO is, is looking to do is, is, is to continue this programme of um, workshops and engagement before prototyping a standard uh, and then that standard will be both tested and evaluated in a open and participatory um, way and I'd really encourage you know everyone um, tuning to this to, to get involved in that in that process um, in terms of you know when, in terms of the uh, in terms of Robert's point about about understanding um, um, the effectiveness of data of, of, of data use if I interpret the question correctly, um i think that 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 isn't is an interesting point you know so 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 transparency um transparency is really important in terms of understanding how something is is operating um but also um knowing knowing things such as um how how 
how accurate decision-making process is um, may be more or less important in a in a given use case, and and it may depend quite a bit on the on the severity of the of the outcome for a for an incorrect decision. Um, I mean, one, one of the one of the interesting findings from this work I felt, um, which which again is you know is something where we'll have to I think interrogate it when it gets you know when it gets to, to the to the design phase of the, the standard, but that people actually wanted they wanted to be reassured um, about the quality of the algorithm, and they actually they actually wanted within the transparency information there to be proactive reassurance that. This isn't going to um, this isn't going to harm you, um, and um, clearly that that represents that you know, there's a significant tension there between like um, providing honest and, and an accurate reflection of how an algorithm is is operating, and and um, I think it's you know one of the one of the one of the things that came through from the engagement work, which we might have to um, you know. Look at look at quite closely because clearly it's important just to make sure that government is being accurate in terms of how it's describing um, algorithms. But but that was an interesting finding I felt that actually people uh, there, there was a there was a feeling from the groups that um, people or at least some people would rather reassurance than than a warts and all honest explanation of the risk of an algorithm. Excellent. Well, we've had some other questions coming, but I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, but thank you very much indeed for that, Ben. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and if you are interested in engaging further on algorithmic transparency, that's one of the thematic areas currently being looked at by the Open Government uh, National Action Plan. And if you'd like to find out more information on that, you can go to www.opengovernment.org.uk, as well as reading um, CDI's new report on their website. So before I blow the final whistle on tonight's data bites, a few brief programme notes. If you want to join us for some swift post data bites, pre-match drinks, the details are hopefully on screen. Link is bit.ly slash db21drinks, password ifgdb21. If you'd like to take your interest in the Department for International Trade, who we've heard from tonight into extra time, the IFG is running a full day virtual conference next Tuesday, the 13th of July, marking five years of the department. If you want to watch something Welsh without having to travel two and a half thousand miles to Baku or endure terrible chart-based jokes, you can watch First Minister Mark Drakeford at the IFG next Thursday, the 15th of July. There are lots of other IFG events coming up, including some on data and digital at the party conferences happening in late September and early October. There are some partnership opportunities if you'd like to get in touch. All that remains for me to say is some big thank yous. First to EY for supporting tonight's event. Second to you, you've been a great crowd. And third to our brilliant speakers this evening. I hope you'll join me in applauding them off the virtual pitch. Enjoy the football, enjoy the summer, and if you're not coming to drinks, see you in September. Good night. <laughs>